and we pray the Lord's blessing on it this day. Um, as the scripture says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And as we mentioned last week, that they that worship God, worship him in spirit and in truth in wherever place we are found. Um, concerning the announcements today, we'll uh, have them again after the service. And uh, we have uh, also this uh, day uh, the uh, financial report, which is sort of long overdue. We were trying to do it before, but because of the COVID virus situation, uh, it was put off. So Brother Craig Moore will be reading that after the service. So we asked you not to uh, please disband straight away. We will go we're going to hear the, the financial report uh, being read, and then we can have our greetings and so forth afterwards. Uh, we hope to stay for that as well. So uh, having said that, um, I would like to begin the service. Um, the song that was actually sung last it is, um, was on my mind for uh, a starting song, so I think we'll just leave it at that. Uh, thee alone, beloved Saviour, have I taken as my Lord. Thou alone art mine own. Um, and um, we would like to begin perhaps with a prayer. So let's all unite our heads and hearts in prayer. Um, as far as the, the word today, I was inspired um, because of last Wednesday's Bible study we had to dig a little bit deeper into the idea or the notion that does God love the, the sinner and hate sin? And what does it mean when the Bible in certain places talks about God hating the workers of iniquity? Uh, is God going against his own character? Is God going against his own word? doesn't make sense. So I'd like to, with the Lord's help, <clears throat> first of all, read from the scriptures that are very positive on the love of God. I don't know, uh, Brother Eric, if you can um, put the Bible up so that I don't have to go back and forth and um, maybe you can look at some of these scriptures with me. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> I want to start with, first of all, while he's doing that, is going to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 says, Beloved, beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. And you would think, well, God loves only those that are born of God. Uh, because there's a mutual love, and I, I concede that it is a very special love, which I'll get into later on. So let's go back down to verse 4, verse 19, chapter 4, verse 19, 1 John. We love him because he first loved us. And when did that love come? Was that after we were Christians? He first loved us. It's a hint that before we could love him, he had to love us first. 
John 3.16, the same author, John the disciple writes, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent his, not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, this word condemned here, if you don't believe you're condemned already, uh, does not mean that God doesn't love you. Um, because he said he gave his Son because he so loved the world. I think it's very clear from there. But let's go into something. Uh, other scripture which is very clear and just as clear the apostle paul romans chapter 5 verse 6 for when we were yet without strength in due time christ died for the ungodly there he is on the cross god so loved the world on the cross he gave his only begotten son and he died for the ungodly for scarcely for a righteous man one will die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us. Here it is. God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. If so, then, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, so much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So there are some very positive scriptures that tell us that God loved us while we were yet sinners, that Jesus died on the cross before we could even have a chance to love him in the, in the way God loves us. Ephesians 2 says this, verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So sinners are by nature the children of wrath. They are under God's wrath. That's exactly what Jesus said, what John says about Jesus in John chapter 3. He said that, that those who do not believe are condemned already. And that's what it means to be under God's wrath, to be condemned to death. But there is a way for that condemnation to be removed. There is a way for that judgment to be withheld. So we are children of God's wrath when we are not in his um, covenant, when we are not his children. Verse 4 goes on to say in Ephesians 2, But God, who is rich in mercy, 
for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace to his, in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. So <clears throat> we have often heard and we've often taught that in order to understand the Old Testament, we can understand it far better now with the New Testament, with the New Covenant. We can see now things more clearly as to what the prophets were saying, what the character of God is really like. In the Old Testament, there are many things that are said and, and done that people question. They say that the God of the Old Testament is not the same God as the New Testament. And that's where the Gnostics really made a big mistake. So <clears throat> we come to, let's go to some Old Testament uh, scriptures to try to reconcile that, to see what what is God saying in the Old Testament. And something that <clears throat> they will appeal to is Psalm 5.5 five or 5.6, I think. Psalm 5, 5 says, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5, 6. Thou shalt destroy them that, speaking leasing, that speak leasing, or that is lies or falsehoods. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. They're pretty strong words, aren't they? They are very strong words. And uh, it is it is definitely not um, incorrect to say that God hates sin. That's the minimal thing that we can say. God hates sin, right? Jeremiah 44, 4. How be it I sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them and saying, Oh, do not this abominable thing that I hate. Proverbs 6.16, these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that, are sh that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift to run, running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. These, these are the words of God in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 139, 21. This is David speaking. This is where we actually started the conversation last Wednesday where, where David had these very strong words. Do I not hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? This is the emotion that David had when he saw um, the enemies of God, you know, uh, trying to go against God and, and challenging God and defying God and rebelling against God. These are the e emotions that went through David. The question here is, um, what does hate mean in the Old Testament? What does hate mean anyway? 
I, I, I had to go back to how does man understand hate? What is the um, view of hate from man's perspective? So I looked up <clears throat> from man's perspective, what is the psychology behind hatred? What is it? And as I uh, viewed a few viewpoints from, from different psychologists, they, sa they said that we hate things that are different from us. When there are things that are in our group or outside of our group, they're two separate things. The in-group is the things that we like and the out-group is the things that we dislike. It's us and them. And so these are the two separate factors that cause hatred. They, this is the psychologist. I'm not saying how much truth there is to this, but I'm giving you the world perspective first. There are two separate factors that cause us to experience hatred, and these are love and aggression. We love those in our in-group and those that are out-group we hate. Now, that's it's not a general statement. This is why some people hate. <clears throat> One example of this is nationalism. It has connotations towards the outgroups. When some people love their country, it seems that they automatically hate immigrants. Again, general statement. This does not mean that all people feel this way. These are there are factors of hate and fear. People that hate things that they fear about themselves. You know, they have a hatred for high achievers. People are successful academically, financially, may experience a hatred for these people. People are hateful of others being successful in starting their own businesses because it instills in them the fear of themselves leaving their jobs and committing to the sacrifices it takes to start and run their own successful business. These are some of the things that, that psychologists are saying. Or if you're an exceptional athlete, you, they get booed because, you know, it, you, you have to you are challenged that you could never reach that level. That may be a, a, a sort of a not a strong argument. But anyway, but here's one we can identify with. Another example is people who hate asylum seekers. What was the reaction to all the refugees from the Middle East? And there was a big apprehension of refugees going into different countries and they had some grounded perhaps founded reasons for believing that way. But there are others as well, and it's, it's not far from us. It's, it's just south of the border. Uh, asylum seekers that may come in and people over here fearing that their jobs are being threatened, fearing that they may have better skills and they may lose their jobs. And that's why, you know, Trump is building the wall and the, there's this big threat from the Mexicans coming in and taking our uh, wealth away. I'm not sure how, how big that was, but anyway, that's, that's a pure, uh, real example. He states, the, the psychologist states that expression of hatred is a valuable characteristic in creating identity within our own group. We feel that if we belong to a group then we have to be loyal to our group and hate the other group. And one example of this is within one city, you've got two sports teams. You love your team, but you hate the other one. I remember walking through the streets of through the uh, train station at Rome, waiting for my train. 
and I hear this group of fans coming in from the soccer match, Juventus versus whatever it was, right, Naples. Napoli, Napoli, they're chanting, Napoli, Napoli. And then all of a sudden, in three seconds, there was another group chasing him and they scattered around because this other group hated the supporters of Napoli. Um, there's a lot of reasons why people hate. Another factor may be explaining cultural differences. There's cultural factors. There's competition. There's betterment of oneself and feeling vulnerable because uh, we we fear we may be taking a, being taken advantage of the enemy. This fear instills uh, instills hate, um, and so forth. So, so there's a psychology of that. I, I like I like this um, rendition because I'm going to compare this now with the hatred that God is so-called um, accused of. Um, this one psychologist says that the most intense of all angers, there are four angers. The first one being anger, the second one being guilt and shame, the third one being apathy and boredom, and the fourth one being hatred, which is very potent. And the most intense of these angers is hatred. It's a very dangerous emotion if people don't know how to work with it, and most don't. It's, a, it's not a hatred like a dislike, I hate rutabagas, or I don't like the way you, treat, you, you treated me. Uh, there is a hatred that is, a, that is like this person is a monster and he's going to die. There's that road rage hatred. You know, and dear ones, I'm, I'm very disappointed uh, in, in this time that we're living in the pandemic where all kinds of conspiracy theories are arising. And they're beginning to paint people as monsters. I've seen it from within our circles. And I've mentioned, you know, I don't know where Bill Gates is going with his uh, vaccines, but he's been depicted as the Antichrist. He's been, well, part of that scheme. He's been depicted as a monster da, 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 and so forth. And we have to be very careful that we, because we fear, because we feel vulnerable, that we don't start becoming what we are saying other people are. Protests and so forth. Uh, the group and mob mentality. The psychology of, and I don't, want, I don't want to get into a psychology sermon, but I want to do this, as I said, to, to, to say this is what the world sees as hatred. The psychologist Jung said hatred is a complete loss of your boundaries. Anger is about boundaries. And I think Sister Margaret and Brother Eckhard uh, in their counseling uh, sessions uh, had sessions on anger uh, being delivered. It's about somebody encroaching your territory. It's about boundaries. Shame is about boundaries. Anger is a boundary for external threats. If people are challenging you or they're trying to abuse you or others, your anger steps up. It wants to protect. Shame is about boundaries of your own self. We had this at CFG uh, a few weeks ago. So that you are not doing anything that would challenge or abuse others. So anger is protecting you on this side. Shame is protecting you on this side. And in many ways, this anger, we can call it indignation or justice. Defending the justice 
and shame to prevent us from anything coming out of our mouths to to break the boundaries of others, they can be very protective for us. But it's what we do with that anger and what we do with that shame that is of utmost importance. Anger and shame work together to keep you upright and socially viable, socially worthwhile. This is the worldly being. I don't, I don't even believe she's a believer in God. But this is a, this psych, this is a psychology that's coming out of it. When hatred comes up, it indicates that your boundaries are removed. This evil person has broken your boundaries and your shame is gone because you are willing to go out and attack back. You know, there's... There's a lot of truth in that. The Bible tells us, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will recompense. We are not to return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Hatred is a sign of complete boundary devastation. Hatred is a mirror. This is Jung's theory. Hatred is this mirror. And the boundary is dropped and someone is living out things that Either you have always wanted to live out, but they get to do it first and you are filled with rage because of it. There are things that you get angry about because you know that within yourself and I am within myself sometimes, I'm like that, but I don't want to see it in other people. And he calls that living in someone's shadow. I'm just giving you, and I see so many so many things uh, in self-righteousness here that Jesus uh, indicted the Pharisees for. He indicted the Pharisees for. They were hypocrites. They were actually doing these things, but in different ways, but condemning others for it. And when we live and learn when the ugly head of hatred pops up, uh, that we learn how to deal with that. Hatred is considered as part of your shadow. The things you cannot accept in yourself, you demonize in others. Hatred is also the split side of adoration and romantic love feeling. Interestingly enough, she says, they both light up the same part of the brain. Hatred and infatuation. So dealing with yourself, introspection with yourself, will could soon easily diffuse any hatred that may be popping up in you. Now, that's that's human understanding of hatred. Let's go back to the Bible. Is God in any way threatened by somebody else's abilities, by somebody else's intellect? Is God in any way afraid that something may happen to his sovereignty if he allows certain things to happen. Does God in any way hate people the way humans hate people? I trow not. When the Bible talks about human hate, well, about that, what God hates and how God hates iniquity and how God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, it's a completely different motivation than that what may come from humans. Yes, there is a side of God that is just. Now, this is so important. That's why I'm going back to 
uh, I had a couple of sermons in, in this past year uh, talking about the righteousness of God. Uh, you read through Romans, please. If you haven't done it, read through the book of Romans. You'll see about 40, uh, 45 times. The Apostle Paul speaks about the righteousness of God. And it's the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of us. It's the righteousness of God. And we talked about it on, on, on Wednesday, that what is God faithful to? Well, we talked about the faithfulness of God. God is faithful to his covenant. He has promised those that believe in him and that, that, that obey him. He has promised all, all the benefits of a, a, a relationship with him. A fulfilling, meaningful life. But for those that reject his promises, reject his word, reject his counsel, they heap it upon themselves. The pain, the suffering, not just now, but for that which is to come. So in the righteousness of God are not only promises of good and salvation, but that this God will deal with sin justly. He will deal with sin, no matter where you've committed it, no matter how you've committed it, no matter if other people didn't see it, no matter if it was 40 years ago, God will deal with sin. Your sin will find you out. That's the that's the the attribute of God, if you will, or nature of God, if you will, that he is faithful to his covenant. He has made this covenant. And is God unjust to punish sin? That is the question. If you go to Romans chapter 3, verse, um, let's go to verse 3.3. Uh, three, three. Romans 3.3. Three. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? We had the same uh, scripture, similar scripture in 2 Timothy 2. He says, if we deny him, he cannot deny himself. He, Paul is saying the same thing here. What if some don't believe in God? Say, I don't believe in him, so this doesn't apply to me. Oh, yes, it does. <laughs> you may not think so. I believe in God, and, I, and many of us believe in God. And we believe this does apply to you. Now, I just looked up the the percentage of atheists in this world. Just this morning, I, I heard uh, Brother Nick Vujicic once in one of his uh, speeches say there's 2% of the world's atheists. That was probably 15, 20 years ago. I looked it up. There's about 13% of this world are atheists. They're without God, like it says in Ephesians chapter 2. Without God in this world, atheos. They don't believe that there's a God. Does that mean because they don't believe he does not exist? Does that mean because they don't uh, want to worship him, they're not going to be accountable for it? Says, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. You know, God is being judged. Man is judging God. That's what he's speaking about here. Man is judging God. God is dead. God doesn't care. God uh, allows suffering. God is this. God is that. 
And that's when, um, who was it? Was it Nietzsche that said God is dead? Well, we know, I won't go into his fate, but what I'm saying is this, is that God is being accused and vilified uh, and, and, and rejected all over this world. 13% of this world reject him. By the way, 50% of China is atheist, and they have probably one-sixth of the world population or one-seventh. It says, is God unrighteous? But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? And I speak as a man. He's saying, look, if, if my unholiness in comparison to God make God much shine much brighter, is God unjust who takes vengeance? I'm doing God a favor, right? That's pretty foolish speaking. He said, I speak as a man. God forbid. How then shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God more abounded through my life unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? Some people are accusing Paul of lying, of trying to knock down the whatever Moses built up and about the law. You've got to keep the law to be justified, but you've got to keep the law. If you don't keep the law, you, you cannot be saved. If you're not circumcised, you cannot be saved and so forth. And Paul is saying you can be saved without the law of Moses. And they accused him. They were slandering him in Romans 3.8. As we be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. So the point here is God is not unrighteous when he will judge the world. God is God. And I was looking for that song, he'll still be God. And I, I forget the some of the verses in there. He'd still be God if this and this and this. God is not unrighteous. I mean, he created us and he made us in his image for his purposes. So if you go back to the very beginning, if you go back to the very beginning, it's sort of related to the question of why would God allow suffering? We've touched on that a little bit now. Why would God allow suffering in the world if he's a loving God, right? So in order to, to better understand God's hate, what is God's love? How do we understand God's love? Some people don't even think that God's love is meaningful or it's fair or it's just or it's moral because people suffer, people die. People are going to be sent to hell forever. What does it mean to create a world that is capable of meaningful expression and experience? This leads us to some very important questions. What kind of a world would God create to make that possible? In order to have a meaningful, expressive love, it has to be between two beings. You know, you can't. I remember my brother-in-law preaching in Mansfield in a leather jacket probably 30 years ago. He was saying, you know, people say, I love my cat, I love my dog, I love my car, and so forth, right? That's not love. That's an infatuation. That's a like. But it's not that meaningful love that God intended to have with his creation. Now, I don't want to, you know, hurt dog lovers. There's there's some some meaning in there. But but the the, the, the love that... God is 
looking for is this relationship. The love between object, between you and your car and your food, and you, is the one of consumption. It pleases you, you consume it, okay? We consume objects for our own pleasure. But the sad thing is we live in a world where pornography is already treating people as objects. What's the difference? The relationship between you and a person is one of connection. We are connected to that person. It's dynamic. and There must be a moral aspect to it. If there's no moral aspect to it, then it is meaningless also. It involves commitment. The intensity of love increases over the years because of increased commitment, all meaningful relationships. When I got married to Millie, I can't, I, I won't lie, I was attracted to her physical beauty. But that's not all. There was another connection. Humble spirit. Don't want to flatter her, but but that grows over the years. And that intensifies over the years. It's this relationship. It's just this meaningful connection of truth and commitment. Loyalty. Sacrifice for each other. You won't get that between you and your car. So when God wanted to create a world where he could express his love and 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 uh, experience with his creation, you know, some people say, and I've heard it, we've had forums at camp about it, you know, God was lonely and God needed to create humans so he wouldn't be so lonely. Well, God in his infinite wisdom and in his infinite knowledge and understanding and power and, and 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 love he already had with him his son he already had with him his holy spirit they three are one and there was love within that trinity that was certainly that everyone can agree agree upon he had hosts of angels and beasts and and all kinds of creatures in there worshiping praising him and adoring that he created but there's a special kind of a love for a child, for your son and for your daughter. And God decided to put Adam and Eve in that garden. And they rejected his love. He gave them law. He gave them a moral structure for the relationship between him and them. He says, I've given you everything. You can do whatever you want. Just don't break this law. There needs to be commitment and faithfulness to the covenant that he made with them in the garden. There was the Adamic covenant. Because I'm going to bless you. And if you break this law, you're going to hurt. You will die. You'll die physically. And then one day you will die spiritually. And then one day you will die physically. And the one law that he gave them, they couldn't keep. And it is no different with us today. God gives us a law. He gives us his moral law in the Ten Commandments. He gives us his commandments through the Lord Jesus Christ, who raised the Old Testament law uh, much higher, to much higher standards. You see the... Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. In the Old Covenant, it was 
it was wrong to murder in the new covenant. It's wrong even to be angry with your brother without a cause. And you say, I've got lots of causes to hate my brother, to be angry with my brother. He said, if you are even angry with your brother, even if you say raka, you're in danger of hellfire or something like that. If you say you're fool, you're in danger of the judgment. It's a higher standard. If you commit adultery in the Old Testament, you're stoned. If you look upon a woman in the New Testament, you have committed adultery in your heart already. And and it go, goes on. We have a law. There's a law between God and man. And we, like Adam, we break that law. Um, I want to draw your attention to Isaiah chapter 1. So if you can follow <coughs> with me in Isaiah chapter 1. This is God speaking to wicked, evil Israel and Judah. Verse 4, our sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They have gone away backward. Why would you be stricken any more? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of your foot even unto the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been clothed, neither bound up, nor mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with, <clears throat> with fire. Your, your land, strangers, devour it in your presence. It is desolate as overthrown by strangers. What is God saying here? Is this, does this look like a God that hates his people? Does this look like a God who, who abhors his nation? Here he's pleading with Israel. He's begging Israel. Why, why are you inflicting this upon yourselves? Because when someone goes out and says, I'm going to break the law of God, and I won't forget the sermon that Brother Bob Freund had once when he said, uh, a Jewish boy said to his Jewish father, you watch me, I'm going to go and break the law. Because the father was always telling him the law of God, the law of Moses. He said, I'm going to go and break the law. And the father said to the son, son, you will not break God's law. The law will break you. Jesus said, fall upon this rock. Fall upon this rock, this stumbling stone to the Jews. Fall upon this rock and be broken. Lest the stone fall upon you and you be crushed to powder. There are those that continue to look for under every nook and cranny to criticize and to accuse God of injustice, of unrighteousness. Of why would he allow suffering in this world? God never created that world this way. 
God created this world to express his love and experience with his people. But man has chosen to reject him. The question is, is not where is God when it hurts? The real question is, where is no God when it hurts? What can your no God do in this world? You just take it as that's it. We're meant to be here. It's fate. Whatever happens, happens. Really? Is God unjust when he punishes sin? Is God unjust when he recompenses evil for evil? Some people would say that if God was love, why should, <clears throat> would he send people to eternal hell for temporary sin? Okay, let's discuss it your way. I've been watching so many of the documentaries. I think this is the 75th anniversary of the liberation from the Holocaust. And people coming up with their <clears throat> stories, their testimonies, everyone they're identical, different circumstances, different times, different places. But when you hear some of the horrific crimes that were perpetrated by fellow human beings who treated the Jewish people as non-human, this falls into that very category, us and them. They are the cause of the poverty and the economic situation in Germany. They are the ones and and we need to hate them. The doctor of death would say women and children to the left, men to the right, for a million Jews in Auschwitz. They were brutally treated. They were torn apart from their mothers and fathers. They were separated from families. They were abused. They were destroyed. So, it's okay, just just thinking, just saying, it's okay if people like Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, ISIS, if they did their thing, now they're dead, they're gone, they're buried, oh, it just happened. Are you okay with that? Am I seeking vengeance? No, by no means. God said, vengeance is mine, I will rep recompense, saith the Lord. That's what the scripture says. God will deal with his enemies. God will deal with those that perpetrate evil. So now let's go back to, oh, some modern day things. I, got, I wrote a list down, some modern day things. Hitler's gone, Stalin's gone, Hussein's gone, uh, Gaddafi's gone, and so forth. ISIS is even gone almost. But what about something that's happening every day? Every day, by the thousands and millions. Pedophilia, abusers, sex traffickers, murders, thefts, scams. This world is full of it. 
Did God create the world for that? Does it hurt you? It does me. But I rest assured that the God who is the judge of the whole earth will do justly. Not that he has pleasure in the death of the wicked. The scripture is very clear. He does not have pleasure in it. But he takes vengeance on those that have rejected him. And I, I begin to wonder <clears throat> when that is. When is that? <clears throat> Romans chapter 9, verse 21 to 24. Can you put it up? Uh, 21 to 24. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and un another unto dishonor? What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known Endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. You see, Paul was responding to a a question somebody had asked or a rhetorical question. Has God forgotten his covenant? Is the word of God taken none effect what he said way back to Abraham back 2000 years BC? He's responding to this and he's saying that throughout history, God has been long suffering, long suffering to those that opposed him, to the people that were led away in the Exodus to Pharaoh, to uh, Israel itself, to the disobedient and to the stiff-necked. He was long-suffering. God could have done away with Pharaoh immediately, but he said, I have raised him up. <clears throat> that word raised means I preserved him. I didn't kill him straight away. <clears throat> I gave him ten plagues. I have raised him up that I might show my power in him and that through that his name will be glorified through all the nations. He was long-suffering with Israel. Israel was made a nation in 1948 after he had gone through the terrible Holocaust and even that was not without God's knowledge. When the people of Israel, the Jewish people, when the Messiah was crucified, cried out, his blood be upon us and upon our children. I don't know how much of that had to do with God's allowing this to happen. God is God. He'd still be God if I couldn't understand it. But he allowed it to happen. And he allowed, he was long suffering enough Eventually, destruction came again to the nation of Israel, as it did when they were taken captive into Babylon, when they were taken captive into uh, Assyria. God allowed these things to happen because it was part of his plan of bringing a remnant to salvation. Just read Romans 9, 10, and 11. 
It's very clear. It's got nothing to do with particular individual election and predestination. It's got all to do with how God dealt with the nation of Israel. Let's look at a couple more uh, scriptures to see how God, what it means when it says God hates. Um, let's look at the Luke 14, 25 to 27. So in there it says, do you, do you have it up, brother? And there were great multitudes with him and turned and said unto him, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower and so forth? You can see that Jesus is not commanding us to hate one another as human psychology tells why it happens. That's not the kind of hate he's talking about. He's using the same word. I think it's uh, – uh, I don't have the Greek in front of me here. It's the same word he uses for other scriptures of hate. What he's saying, he's giving, <clears throat> he's leaving the word hate as a choice between options. You can go to Genesis chapter 30 just to bring this home. In Genesis chapter 30, uh, 29 verse 30, sorry, 29 verse 30. It says, and he went also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served him with yet seven other years. This is now Jacob having to work for his wives. 31, and when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. 33, and she conceived again and bare a son and said, because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son. And she called his name Simeon. Leah had more children for Jacob than Rachel did. Yet the scripture says that she was hated. Here is not saying that he hated her, wishing ill will upon her and, and having all this animosity towards her. The, the word used here is the word of uh, selecting the better preference. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Ja Esau was completely, <clears throat> was completely blessed in all of his life. But God chose Jacob through whom the message of the Messiah would come, through whom the lineage of the Messiah would come. And that word Jacob I loved and Esau have I hated was not done, was not said when he was born. It was said in the book of Malachi when, when God was judging the nation of Edom for their <clears throat> resistance to Israel coming into the promised land. When God says that a man should hate his father, mother, woman, uh, um, brother, sister, 
It means that I think in another gospel it says more that loves him more than me. He's saying your family, even yourself, he said, needs to be an infinite second when it comes to making choices in life to me, about me. God does hate sin. God does hate iniquity. And if it means that God will one day punish sin, will take vengeance, will banish forever from his presence, as it says in Second uh, Thessalonians 1, he will, they will be completely banished from his presence eternally. Then if that's the meaning of hate, then that's what it is. When God will no longer keep you in his presence because you have chosen and he has foreseen that you will not come back again. God gives everyone a chance. He loves them. As long as there is life, there is hope. But when God sees and he sometimes he brings upon immediate destruction. <clears throat> he will he will take immediate destruction sometimes as he did for the nation of Israel, when he came, they came into the promised land, the Canaan, and they just they drove out seven tribes, uh, nations from before them. There were there were deaths, there was slaughter, there was because of the abominations. You can read that also in Deuteronomy. Because of the abominations, the idolatry. That's why he did it, and he punishes sin. Romans chapter one says this, verse eighteen. Romans 1, <clears throat> let's go to verse 16. Again, we're going back to the righteousness of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first <clears throat> and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress it. They push it down. They don't, don't want God in their lives, even though they know he's there. He exists. They see him in creation. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made and his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. They, when they knew him, they glorified him not as God. Neither were they thankful, but became vain in the imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, therefore, God also gave them up. God gave them up. He gave up on them to uncleanness, through the lusts of their own heart, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is God blessed forever. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burn in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves the recompense of the error which was meet. 
And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Now, if you consider that to be hate, go ahead. This is not the definition of the world. This is God's definition of how he hates sin and then how he cannot retain God, a man in his presence anymore because they have made their minds up. They're gone and he knows it. Who knowing the judgment of God, listen to this one, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do it. That to me speaks very strongly for someone that thinks that they can sit behind a TV screen or a computer and lust after what's ever going on behind that screen. It's not love as God meant it to be. It's treating people as an object and it's loving the things that the people of this world love. And if the love of this world is in us, John 1, 2 says, 1 John 2 says, then the love of God is not in us. The world has become our God. Mammon has become our God. Money, wealth has become our God. And God says, you know what? If that's what you want, I'm going to give it to you. There's another aspect of love, which I didn't cover, which even this world knows in their psychology. And it's freedom. Not only after you, it is, is commitment and, and loyalty uh, the framework for meaningful love, but freedom to love is part of that moral framework, to freedom to love. And if we don't have that freedom to love, if we think that we are forced to love, then it's not love at all. I want to quote a, uh, one of these uh, American Declaration of Independence signatories, the signers of the American Declaration of Independence. Do you think that was freedom from freedom from the great Commonwealth, Mother England? The day after the American Declaration of Independence was signed, one of the signers wrote, once the nation is equally poised, a nation must either preserve its virtue or lose its liberty. If you don't preserve the virtue, you will lose your liberty. Because if you think that freedom is to do what you want, when you want, how you want it, how much you want, where, that is not freedom at all. It's anarchy. 
And then you start encroaching on other people's boundaries. And they start encroaching in your boundaries. And then you have to hide. And then you can't even walk the streets at night. And then you can't even feel safe anymore because total freedom coming out from the protection of the law of God is making yourself vulnerable to this world. And indulgement to the to the nth degree is not love, it's lust. So, my dear friend, outside of Jesus Christ, I'm glad God hates sin. And I'm glad that God is a God of who is righteous. Because he deals with sin. He holds his hand on evil, 2 Thessalonians 2 says. And one day he will remove his hand. He will remove his hand from stopping iniquity, becoming as evil and as bad as it can be. And the man of sin will be revealed. I'm glad we have a God, a father that protects us. That gives us boundaries, that gives us limits. Because he will, through that, enable us to reach that heavenly shore. And I want to remind you that in his righteousness, in his righteousness, he never lets sin get away. Sin was dealt with at the cross. The love of God and the justice of God, which are his righteousness, met together. In his son, he loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Someone said, what is something worth? What is something worth? It's worth whatever value someone gives to it that would buy it. Whatever is willing to pay for it. What did God do? How much are we of worth to him? He gave us the most precious, the most dear thing that he could ever think of to redeem us from the curse. He gave us his son. Mercy and truth have met together. Peace and righteousness have kissed each other on the cross of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless his word. To him be the glory. Evermore. This concludes this portion of the service. Um, yeah, I really appreciated uh, the word that was uh, given to us that explained the difference between human hate 
uh, human uh, driven by our own insecurity, by our own uh, weakness, by our own uh, reactionary um, passions out of control. That uh, we know the Bible says that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. And uh, we see that so clearly uh, portrayed on our uh, news and, and, and even in uh, our lives. It's, it's quite dramatic. Um, and yet we see in contrast with that the, the love of God and as he, he has provided and has loved us first and, and uh, so deeply uh, from what he's provided from the beginning even to what he's provided on the cross. And even as he patiently works in each one of our lives seeking to turn us back from the destruction as Psalm 90 says heard at almost every one of the many funerals that have happened recently i just pray that uh, for each of us we would indeed number our days and recognize the love of god that will not be trifled with and uh, that uh, he has given us his greatest freedom our freedom to choose but he's not a creep he's not someone who will force himself upon us uh he's one who will honor our choices and may we all choose to love him first and foremost. Thank you, Brother Edmund. Um, Brother Craig, are you there? Yes, I'm here. So you can uh, present if you if you want and uh, okay. 